Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Memheim and Aleph, six lines down. The Gemara says, Rav, Does Rav really hold like Rav Yehuda? As we already noted in the previous Gemara, it's not a question that Rav holds like Rav Yehuda in the fact that there is muksa on Shabbat, because we have numerous pieces of evidence throughout this Masechet that that's the case. As the Balei Tosvot said, what the Gemara is after here, does Rav hold like Rav Yehuda with regards to the din of Migod Itkatsay Ben Hashmashot Itkatsay Dekula Yoma? That if you have something that is muksa Ben Hashmashot, then it is muksa for the entire day. That is the view of Rav Yehuda, as opposed to Rav Shimon. And from the previous Gemara, the Gemara saw that Rav held like Rabbi Yehuda. And then the Gemara says, well, that Rab holds like Rabbi Yehuda, Hachanami Mistabro, because Rab made a distinction between a ner al-gabi adekel b'shabbat versus a ner al-adekel b'yom tov. And that corroborated this view that Rab holds like Rabbi Yehuda with regards to migo de itkatsay benishmashot, itkatsay the kule yoma. And now the Gemara comes to challenge that because it seems that Rab Paskin like Rabbi Shimon in another instance, which is, v'habo minei, the Rav, wasn't there a query made of Rav? What's the din to pick up the Chanukiah that was lit during the period of the Chaverim in Bavel on Shabbat? It's clear that the Chanukiah is muksa because you lit it with the Chanukah candles going into Shabbat. Now, this would be a classic case of Migodit Katze Benesh Mashot. At that point in time, Benesh Mashot, the candles were lit on the candelabra, and then they are extinguished sometime in the Shabbat. And the question is, can you remove that menorah on Shabbat, which is muksa? So if you hold, like Rabbi Yehuda, that's Migodit Katze Benesh Mashot, Katze the Kuleyoma, then this should be a classic case where it is muksa and it should be problematic. On the other hand, if you believe like Rabbi Shimon, you should be able to move it. So the question is, are you allowed to move the Chanukiah in this situation? The exact details of the circumstance surrounding this case are very difficult for a number of reasons. First of all, when are they trying to move it? Rashi over here brings the possibility that it's after they're already extinguished the candles, they want to move it in order to protect themselves. The reason being is so that the individuals who are these Chavre, who were Zoroastrian radicals or priests that worship the fire gods, when they were ascendant in Persia, they used to have either holidays in which it was a sore to have any candle lit in your house, except for the candle that was in the Beit Avodah or they would confiscate any candle that was lit, or they'd penalize anybody who had a candle that was lit. So that seems to be the circumstances surrounding this. Rashi notes of here, it was a case after it's already extinguished, but they're going to see your candelabra or your Hanukkiah after it's extinguished and know that you lit it, and that'll get them upset. This also has relationship back to Rashi, back on Daf Chafalaf Bet, as well as Rashi and Chav Gimel Amadal, as to where you light your Chanukiah, when you have a Chatser in front of the house, do you light it outside the door, which was Rashi's view over there, or outside of the Chatser itself. Over here, Rashi says they won't see it on the Chatser, yet he quotes the Gemara back on Chafalaf Bet as being that you have to place it out in the Rishut Rabim. It seems to be a little bit of a stira with Rashi here versus what Rashi had previously in the Gemara. Rashi also brings the possibility that it was their holiday, and therefore they don't let anybody light a candles except for the Beit Avodah implying that there was another Gzairah before that. Tosafot claims there's two possibilities. One is that there was a Gzairah against Hanukkah period, or it was that it was the time of the Chaverim in Bavel. But if that's the case, back on Dachal Falomid Bet, there the Re says that the reason they changed the rules with regards to Hanukkah candles, not to light them outside, but rather in the house, was because of the fear or the Sakana. And the Re over there says the Sakana is our Gemara over here, which are the Chaverim that came to Bavel, where it was dangerous to do so, and therefore they moved it indoors to the house. Well, if they moved it indoors and they were lighting inside, why is there any question over here? The person lit inside. The Tosafot first answer is maybe this is someone who ignored that and still lit outside anyway. That's one possibility. And even if that is so, why is there a difference between lighting it in the house versus lighting it outdoors if you're not allowed to have any light at all? So Tosafo there and here notes that maybe there's a difference that they don't search so carefully. So if it's in your house, they're not going to go find it or they won't care so much. If it's outdoors, then it bothers them and they will extinguish it or penalize you. The other problem you have here is that the case seems to involve a sakana, some sort of danger to the individual. Question is, what is this level of danger? If it's pikuach nefesh, then you can't prove anything from this case at all, because anytime you have pikuach nefesh, it overrides any halacha in the Torah, except for the three cardinal sins. So it has to be a sakana, some sort of danger, that is, that it's not life-threatening, 
but dangerous enough that we would consider consider the possibly ignoring muksa in this situation. So all of those are a little bit unclear about what exact details of the case are. But nevertheless, they asked this question of Rav, are you allowed to move the Chanukiah, whether according to Rashi it was after it's extinguished, or whether according to the other view in Rashi, or maybe the Tosafot, it was even when it was still lit. Are you allowed to move it because of this danger? You can definitely do it, you can definitely move it, which makes it sound like Rav is possibly like Rabbi Shimon, that either after it's extinguished, or even if it's still burning, if it was Muksa Benesh Mashot, that does not necessarily have bearing on the fact that it is Muksa during the daytime. Where it says, Shatatchak, shiny. What do you mean? It's an extenuating circumstance. There is Sakana involved here. Again, it can't be Sakana at the level of Pikuach Nefesh, because then the question doesn't even get off the ground. But it has to be some sort of shatat chak. Is this the aloha? Meaning that where you just pass it now, is that really the aloha? You can rely on Rabbi Shimon in a difficult situation. So again, if it's pikuach nefesh, what do you need Rabbi Shimon for? You could wave the aloha irrespective. So it must be that the situation or the circumstance we're speaking of here is a sakana that's not pikuach nefesh. And he says, in this extenuating circumstance, we rely on Rabbi Shimon. But that means that otherwise he thinks the locha is like Rabbi Huda, And therefore it's not a psak like Rabbi Shimon, it's a psak like Rabbi Shimon only in extenuating circumstances. So Rabbi Yishlakish queries of Rabbi Yochanan, chitin shizaran. If you put seeds, kernels of wheat in the ground to plant them so that they will grow into grain, or you have an egg that's being incubated by a chicken, mahu. What is the din according to Rabbi Shimon with regards to that? Lately, Rabbi Shimon muksa. When Rabbi Shimon says there's no muksa, that's only when you don't push it away or push it out of your environment actively. But But if you intentionally or actively push it out of the environment of usage, then it will be considered muksa. Or maybe it makes no difference. So we're going to see in a second what the answer Rabbi Yochanan gave. But with regards to muksa, you have to understand the source of the word muksa, which will appear in our Gemara in a bit, which is that muksa is a place where they used to put out the fruits to dry. Mikatseh. They put them out there and they leave them there for a long duration. And basically they're out of sight, out of mind, because you have no intention of using or utilizing these items for a long period of time because they are there to dry out. And it takes over the period of the summer to dry out those fruits. And then only then will you go and bring those fruits in and have them and they will be edible. The muksa is the area or the place where they stuck the fruits to dry out. And it's probably related to the word kayets, summer, because that's when they're put out to dry. In either case... The idea of muksa is a borrowed term that means something that you have pushed out of your everyday usage or your intent to have benefit from it in the near term. And therefore, you have to look at muksa as being something that no longer has viable usage on Shabbat. Now, Rabbi Shimon, we know, and we're going to see later in today's Gemara, believes that if you push it out the yadayim and it becomes inedible, then that's clearly something that you have no intent of using on Shabbat. And that, even according to him, will be considered a mukse because you pushed it out of your usage or utility on Shabbat because of those factors. And therefore, it's mukse. You have other forms of mukse which Rabbi Shimon doesn't necessarily subscribe to, but we do have Rabbi Huda does subscribe to them, things that are mukse machmat isur, mukse machmat miyus, mukse machmat atzmo, mukse machmat mitzvah. There are all sorts of types of muksa, and the concept or the idea is, are these items that you have no intent of using on Shabbat because their designated purpose is somehow outside the realm of what can be utilized on Shabbat. And therefore, you have to look at every item. Some items are naturally considered to be muhan, ready and available to be used on Shabbat, like food in general which is found in your kitchen, those are items that you would expect, even if you didn't intend to, they're naturally or by default are things that are within your purview of usage on Shabbat. Other things that are completely out of your purview, like we saw with regards to the muksa, putting the dried fruits away somewhere, those are items that are completely out of your perspective to be used on Shabbat. And then there are items that sit in between those two categories. But any item that you speak about with regards to Shabbat, you have to look at what is its default status. And then, in order to be muksa, does it have to therefore be changed from its default status of being muhan the Shabbat into muksa? Or vice versa, is the natural state of the item muksa, and that is that it's not within your purview to be used on Shabbat, or doesn't have viable usage on Shabbat, and then you have to actively bring it in 
in order for it to be Mukhan and Shabbat. So you have to always start with what is the default of this item, and then what did you do or what did you have in mind with regards to it. So what Reish Lagish is asking Rabbi Yochanan is, here you have seeds that are planted. They were edible seeds, and now you could still take them out of the ground and eat them, but now they're planted. So when you did that, did you then take something that is default as a food item? The egg is a similar thing. You could have eaten the egg. Instead, now it's being incubated under the chicken, and it could turn into a chick. So in its current state, it's edible and usable. So default status is that it's muhan the Shabbat, and only if you are dochebi yadayim, here where you actively planted the seeds, or you put the chicken, or let the chicken incubate the egg, so you now have actively pushed it out of being Muchan and Shabbat, and even Rabbi Shimon will agree in that case that you have Mokseh, or does Rabbi Shimon have even a higher standard than that, which makes it that Mokseh only happens when there's the Chiyah B'yadayim, you push it out, plus it becomes unusable or inedible on Shabbat, which is the view that we're going to see later on in Rabbi Shimon. So that's Rish Lakish's question. Here you have Chitim, which are still edible, but they're sitting as seeds in the ground, we have an egg that's still edible at this point, but it's being incubated by the chicken. If you set it up in that way, according to Rabbi Shimon, is that enough of a reason to call it muksa because you pushed it out of your purview or your usability on Shabbat? Or maybe it makes no difference because they're still edible items and therefore they're not considered to be muksa for Rabbi Shimon. So Amalei, Rabbi Yochan answers him, a muksa the Rabbi Shimon, el shemen shibiner. Only thing that's muksa going to Rabbi Shimon is oil in the lantern. At the time that it is lit, since it is both muksa lemitzvato and muksa leisuro, therefore it is problematic on Shabbat. Now, first of all, Ristosvo points out and leaves it as a tzarachion. There's a better example of muksa for Rabbi Shimon, which we're going to see later on in today's daf. Nevertheless, Rabbi Yochanan over here states as his example of what is considered to be muksa on Shabbat as oil in the lantern at the time that it is lit. It's clear that you can't use the oil in the lantern while it's lit because that is a problem of keyboy, of extinguishment. If you take away the fuel that is fueling the candle, then you have extinguished the candle in essence. So even Rabbi Shimon agrees that you can't take the oil out of the lantern itself while it's lit, not because of muksa, but simply because it's a derivative of keyboy of extinguishing. So as Tosafo points out here, we're not speaking about the oil that's in the lantern itself. We're speaking about the oil that's dripping out of the lantern. Even Rabbi Shimon agrees that that's muksa. The reason that he seems to agree is because it's huksa the mitzvah to, the mitzvah of having light on Shabbat, the candles of Shabbat, so that's a mitzvah. In addition to that, it has a isur associated with it, which is the fact that it's lit right now. And so therefore, the combination of it being both a mitzvah, that it's needed for the light on Shabbat, as well as the fact that it's doing a malacha of isur on Shabbat, the combination of those two items makes it that it is muksa, according to Rabbi Shimon, and again, not the oil in the lantern, but the oil that drips out of the lantern till it is extinguished, until the time that it is blown out, where then you lose one of those factors. In terms of Huxa the Mitzvato and Huxa the Suro, they are different concepts. Huxa the Mitzvato is not a concept that necessarily is related to Shabbat. It's actually, as we're going to see in a second, a derivative of the dinim of Sukkah. And that by Sukkah, we find that there is Muksa of the Schach of the Sukkah, the walls of the Sukkah, the decorations of the Sukkah, because they were designated for the Mitzvah. And since they were designated for the mitzvah, it's disrespectful or inappropriate to use them for anything else besides the mitzvah. That means if you intend to use it for a mitzvah and you leave it in that position, since it's taken on that property of a mitzvah, you can't downgrade it or you can't remove it or utilize it for your own personal needs because it's dedicated to the mitzvah until the mitzvah is complete. In that case, the isur is not an isur of carrying it around. It's an isur of misappropriating it. It's an isur of utilizing it for something that's not a mitzvah. As Tosafot points out, just because it's hooked to the mitzvah toe, you could walk around with that lantern and still have the benefits of the mitzvah because the light is there and you're just using the light in a different place. So that wouldn't make it usur bitil tul. And also has no application to Shabbat directly. It could be on Yom Tov, Cholomoed. It could be any time that it's dedicated to a mitzvah or even the Hanukkah lights on Hanukkah. Whereas when it comes to Huxali Suro, that's something that's particular to Shabbat. There's an Isser Tiltul. There's no Isser of utilizing it on Shabbat because you can get light from a candle on Shabbat. The utilization for your own purposes, the problem is that it is an Isser and we don't want you interacting with something that is a sewer. So you have two different concepts that are being combined here. And Rabbi Yochanan says, when you have a combination of those two items, of Huxal and and Huxal in combination, they make it that Rabbi Shimon agrees that there is muksa in this case. 
So that's also points out over here, Mishum de le mitzvah That's not a reason in of itself not to carry on a lantern or a lamp that is lit. And the only reason we don't let you carry it around is because it is a bustis le davarha sur. It's carrying in it items that are asurim, whether that's the oil that's inside of it, which is muksa now the mitzvato, or whether it's because the flame that's on top of it, or whether it's shema yechabeh, maybe you'll cause it to be extinguished, whatever it is, that that's a bustis le davarha sur, it's a base that's carrying something that's asur, that is why it is considered to be problematic over here. But the common denominator between them is that this is a man-made issue or a man-made initiated problem, which is Huksa the Mitzvah is you've designated for a mitzvah. And Huksa the Isuro is because you have done something that is Isur with the item or there's Isur that's been created through this item, that that also is a man-made creation. And the two of those together, at least according to Rabbi Shimon, would then cause you a problem for Shabbat at least according to Rabbi Yochanan. So therefore it is, Muxala Mitzvato was an Easter of Hana'ah, or utilization other than the candle of Shabbat. Muxala Yisuro is an Easter Tilto, which says that you can't carry it around. The Gemara says, Muxala Mitzvato. Is that true that Rabbi Shimon does not hold of Muxala Mitzvah alone without the Muxala Yisuro? But Tanya, don't we have a bright by the Sukkah? If a person made a sukkah properly with the proper roofing or covering of skach, beach rabbi kramim, and then he decorated it with, as Rashi says over here, colored clothing, uvesadinim, and sheets, and mitsuyarim, that were decorated or drawn on, the talabai guzim, and then he hung nuts, afarstakim, and peaches, shkedim, almonds, rimonim, and pomegranate, varpichilei shalabanim, and clusters of grapes, Vatarot shel shibulim, and the beards, or the heads of grain. Yenot shmanim v'siltot. As Rashi says here, they're in glass containers, wine, oil, and flour. Asur yom tov Once they are made into decorations for the sukkah, they are then designated for the sukkah, and one may not get benefit from them all the way until after the last day of yom tov, which means in Eretz Yisrael, after Shemini Atzeret, if he made a Tanai in the beginning, I called the feed Tanao. Then everything is according to his Tanai. The Brita itself, as Tosfo points out, cannot all be Rabbi Shimon. Because Rabbi Shimon, we know, doesn't hold the Migodit Katze Ben The reason that these items are considered Muksa is because they're Muksa the Mitzvah. They were designated for a Mitzvah. They remain in that status as long as the mitzvah is still valid or still in state. That means for the seven days of Sukkot, while there's still a mitzvah of Sukkah, then the decorations of the Sukkah are considered to be muksa the mitzvah to. Now, the reason that you can't use it on the eighth day of Shemini Yatzeret is because there's a Benesh Mashot period. Benesh Mashot period, we're not sure, is the end of the seventh day or the beginning of the eighth day. Since in that period of time you cannot get Hanaf from those items because we're not certain of whether it's still Sukkot and therefore you can't get benefit from them, it's already the eighth day and there's no longer Sukkot and you could get benefit from them. So since they are Migo Ditkatze Benesh Mashot, they remain Muksa for the entire eighth day. That's only true according to Rabbi Yehuda. And so therefore Tosvot says this last line in the Braita that says if it is Admotse Yom Tov Acharon, that's only according to Rabbi Yehuda, not according to Rabbi Shimon. But the Gemara is assuming now that the first part of it is a Kulei Alma, that the decorations of Sukkot, once they're Muksa, the Mitzvah they remain Muksa for the entire period of Sukkot. And it seems like Rabbi Shimon subscribes to Muksa, the Mitzvah irrespective of Isuro. Here there's no Isuro involved. And that's because it could be on Cholomoed that you want to take it down. It could be during a time period when it's Mutar to take down the decorations. And we still do not allow you to get benefit from them. Unless you make a condition up front. So the condition up front says that I'm not releasing these to the mitzvah, I'm maintaining my rights to utilize them. And then everybody agrees that you have a right to benefit from them. So the Gemara says about that, Where in this Brita do you find Rabbi Shimon's name mentioned? Maybe it's Rabbi Yehuda. And how do you know, or how can you prove from this, that this is the Shita of Rabbi Shimon? The Gemara is about to bring another Brita, which is much more obviously Rabbi Shimon, and could have brought this Brita first. Rashi says the reason they didn't bring this Brita first is because the first Brita we brought was a Brita 
that has more authority to it because it's a brighter from Rabbi Chiyah or Rabbi Oshayah. And the Gemara prefers those brightos because of their authoritative standing, which makes it that we would be much more inclined to bring a proof from it. So it's a weaker brightah in terms of proving that it's Rabbi Shimon, but it's still a stronger brightah in terms of its authoritative standing. But now the Gemara is going to bring a brightah that is not from Rabbi Chiyah or Rabbi Oshayah, which is much more obviously a proof to what we're looking for, which is the Tani Rabbi Chiyah Bar Yosef, Kameh Rabbi Yochanan. You have a brightah brought Rabbi Chiyah Bar Yosef in front of Rabbi Yochanan, which is according to Rashi is not a bright of Rabbi Chaim Rabbi Oshaya. One may not take off the wood from the sukkah on Yom Tov. Except for things that are adjacent to it. Rabbi Shimon Matir. And Rabbi Shimon is Matir. And as Rashi points out over here, the beginning of the Brayta is not speaking about Sukkot. The beginning of the Brayta is speaking about Pesach or Atzeret, where we are now, Pesach or the Chag Shavuot. And it's a Sukkah that was made for Tzel. It's just a regular hut that was made for shade to shield from the sun. And now you're on Yom Tov. The question is, can you take pieces of wood or items from it on Yom Tov? So from the Ohel itself, from the roof itself, Taking off those eight seam or from the walls itself are problematic because then you're destroying an ohel on Yom Tov. And that's a restriction of soter or putting it back together is a problem of binyan. And that you're not allowed to do on Yom Tov. So that would be restricted on Yom Tov according to everyone. Minasamukhla, items that are adjacent to it, as Rashi says over here, if he has bundles of wood or sticks or twigs that are next to the wall of the sukkah, then there's no problem of soter, of taking apart the ohel, because it still stands without those items. Those items you can take, because those were not designated for the sukkah, or the shade of the sukkah, and therefore, it's not a problem of a binyan and stira, and not a problem of muksa. On the other hand, Rabbi Shem Matir, not only the items that are samukhla, but even the sukkah itself you can take. Now, Rabbi Shimon obviously holds a binyan and stira, so it can't be a case where the sukkah is still standing, it has to be a case where the sukkah fell down. It's no longer usable as a sukkah, so there's no binyan and stira anymore. According to the Tanakhama, there still remains a problem of muksev because it was already muksev benash mashot because it was designated to be an ohel during that period of time. Now that it fell on Shabbat, doesn't change its status because Rabbi Shimon is matir because Rabbi Shimon doesn't hold of muksev and therefore you can utilize it if the ohel fell apart on Yom Tov. You have a right to use it. There's no problem of muksev. That's with regards to Pesach and Atzeret. Shavin But when it comes to Chaga Sukkot, and you have a sukkah on Sukkot, Shia Surah. That even according to Rabbi Shimon, it would be a Surah. And if you made a condition with regards to it, then everything is according to his condition. What you have here is Rabbi Shimon agreeing that on Sukkot, you may not utilize the sukkah. Now, the only reason that you would not be able to use the sukkah is because it's muksa le mitzvato. Because if it was muksa because of the fact that it was an OL, that we already saw in the previous part of the Brayta, that Rabbi Shimon is matir. It doesn't bother him that if it falls down during Pesach or Atzeret, that you can utilize it. That's not a problem of muksa. The only difference between Sukkot and the other times is that it's mitzvah of Sukkot during that period of time. That means that Rabbi Shimon is clearly subscribing to this idea of muksa machmat mitzvah. So either on Yom Tov, if it falls down, you're not allowed to utilize it, or on Cholom even if it doesn't fall down, you're not allowed to utilize it. And the only reason that would be is because it's huksa the mitzvah tov. And it is muksa for the mitzvah of sukkah. And you see here that Rabbi Shimon agrees with that position. And even though there's no iser involved here, because on Cholomoed, it's mutar to take apart an ohel or put up an ohel. Or on Yom Tov, if it already fell down, where there's no iser of binyan and stira, he still says you can't get benefit from these items. So you see that Rabbi Shimon subscribes to Muksa Mechmat Mitzvato, irrespective of whether you have the Isur that is involved. And that goes against where Rabbi Yochanan was proposing above. And obviously, if you bake a tznai in it, then you can determine when it's going to be Muksa Mitzvato and not Muksa Mitzvato, because you designated when you're going to utilize it for Mitzvah and when the Mitzvah terminates. But it says, Ke'en Shemin Shebener. Be Yochanan wasn't saying, like Shemin Bener. But similar to Shem Ben-Air, coming in Hova Huxa the Mitzvato, Huxa the Isuro. And the way that Rashi explains it over here is that the problem with the Shem and the Ner is that it's Muxa the Mitzvato, but how long is it Muxa the Mitzvato? Is Huxa the Isuro. That as long as the Isur exists, then there is Huxa the Mitzvato, which means 
as long as the lantern or the lamp is alight, there is an isur. That isur means that the mitzvah is still extant, because the whole point of having the light on Shabbat is that it's lit. Once it's extinguished, then hooks on the mitzvah doesn't apply anymore because the mitzvah has terminated. And that'll be the difference between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Which is Rabbi Shimon thinks that it's Huxa the going into Shabbat because it's lit. It will remain Huxa the because as long as the Easter is still intact, as long as it's still lit, because then it's still accomplishing the mitzvah that you wanted. Once it's extinguished, the Easter is gone, but the reason that it's not Muksa is not because the Easter is gone, it's because the mitzvah is no longer relevant. Therefore Rabbi Shimon thinks you can get benefit from it then. As opposed to Rabbi Yehuda who says that even after it is extinguished, you can't get Hanaf from it or benefit from it because it has muksa of Isur that happened Benish Mashod and therefore it's Itkatse the Kuleyoma or it's Muksa Machand Isuron remain that way throughout the remainder of Shabbat or if it's in a Klicheres it's Muksa Machmat Miuso. So both of them agree that while it's lit you can't first of all utilize it for anything besides its mitzvah. Number two is you can't carry it around not because of Isur, because Rabbi Yishimah doesn't hold of Isur, but because, according to Rabbi Shimon, it's a basis ladover asur, and therefore you can't carry it around. For Rabbi Huda, maybe it's because of Isuro that you can't carry it around. After it's extinguished, Muksa disappears for Rabbi Shimon, whereas for Rabbi Huda, it's still maintained. But what we can now come to the conclusion is that Rabbi Shimon does have a concept of Muksa the Mitzvah independent of Isuro, and if you designate something for a Mitzvah, that's enough to be considered muksa or mitzvato, even if it doesn't have an isuro that's associated with it. Now what's interesting about this Gemara over here is that the Gemara says that the reason you can't benefit from the atzeya sukkah is because of the fact that it's muksa the mitzvato. If you go to the Gemara in sukkah and daftev tet, over there it says that from the posuk that shem shamayim is chala sukkah and that there's an isudoraita to get benefit from the sukkah. So how come over there the Gemara thinks it's a Torah problem? And over here we're saying the reason that it's a surah is because you designated it and made it into a mitzvah, which is a dindar abonon. So the Rishonim deal with this in different ways. The Ri says that it's only true that it's muksa doraita when the sukkah is still intact. But after the sukkah falls, then the dindoraita falls away because it's no longer a sukkah. And then the din of muksa the mitzvoto kicks in. The Rebbeinu Tam, on the other hand, answers that the part that's muksa midoraita is only the minimum shear of sukkah that you need in order to accomplish the mitzvah of sukkah. Anything that's beyond that, or size that's beyond the 7 by 7 tefachim, is muksa only because of muksa mitzvato of the rabbona, not midoraita. And the Beit Yosef, on the other hand, is mechalek between parts of the sukkah. The schach has a din doraita of being muksa or dedicated to shemayim. Whereas the walls are only muksa the mitzvato midrabanan. And so therefore the different parts of the sukkah have different dinim. One's doraita and one is dirabonan, which is the sheet of the rosh in Masechet Sukkah, that the Shem Shemayim is only chalal the schach of the sukkah, but not on the walls of the sukkah. Kayit Nami, and we have a similar expression of this, that Amr Echir Ba'av, Amr Rabbi Yochanan, the name of Rabbi Yochanan, name Huxal Rabbi Shimon, Hukain Shem and Shebener, Shebeshashu Dolei, Hove Huxal Mitzvato, Huxa the Isuro. So you see this much more wordy, but explanatory view of Rabbi Yochanan, which is the fact that the problem here is Muksa the Mitzvato, and what determines Mitzvato is when it's lit, because that's when it's useful for its Mitzvah, and that's what makes it Huksa the Isuro. The Isuro is the duration of Huksa the Mitzvato, rather than the reason for the Muksa over here. So now we have another statement of Shmuel, which defines Rabbi Shimon's view. Throughout Shas, Devin Tanaim and Amoraim, trying to figure out what exactly is the position of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon doesn't hold the muksa, but we know he does have some areas where he holds the muksa. And the question always is, is this one of those items that Rabbi Shimon thinks is muksa? Rabbi Huda holds a muksa completely. And we have Rabbi Meir's Shita before, where he had some things that are and some things that are not the muksa. But here, we have a statement from Rabbi Yudah Meshmol limiting the scope of Rabbi Shimon's view of muksa, which is, so that the only things that are problematic are figs that were put up to be dried in the muksa or grapes that were put up to turn into raisins into the muksa. That's something that you're doche biyadayim. And since you're doche biyadayim, that is what makes it muksa even according to Rabbi Shimon. We're going to see in the Gemara in a second that there's another factor that's important. And that is not only do you have to be mikatsa biyadayim, but number two is that it also has to be that they lose their edibility during that period of time. 
There's a period of time when you put the figs up to dry where they become inedible, and then only after they're dried out do they become edible again. Same thing with the grapes. There's a period of time where they're inedible from the point when they're grapes till raisins, and then they become edible again. Rabbi Shimon only thinks that it's muksabi adayim, sufficiently so that you can't utilize it on Shabbat. When you're mekatsabi adayim, you actively pushed it out of your purview of things that you would use, plus the item turns inedible. That is why before, when we had Reish Lakish asking Rabbi Yochanan, if you put the wheat kernels in the ground, or you put the egg under the chicken, over there, Rabbi Shimon does not think it's moksa, because over there it was dochevi adayim, you did push away with your hands, but it doesn't become inedible at that point in time. Just because you put the seeds in the ground, they're not inedible. Just because the egg is being incubated at this point in time, has yet to become inedible, and therefore it is not problematic, according to Rabbi Shimon, in terms of moksa. Only things like Rugerod and Simukim that have both the Chiyabiyadayim and they become inedible are things that have Muksa. And you'd have to say this is different than the case of the candle coming into Shabbat. We have the Chiyabiyadayim and you have an Isur of usage or utilization tiltul because of the problem of Kibui. Yet after it's extinguished, Rabbi Shimon says it's fine. So even though it was not Rolwe while it was lit and it was Dachiyabiyadayim, we still don't call that Rugerod with Simukim. And it's clear here that it have to be grilled with simukim that are roi lachila on Shabbat. Otherwise, there's no question as to whether you can eat them or not. So either you have to say that the grilled and simukim are not fully ripened. They're still partially, and some people would eat them, even though most people would not eat them. And that's why they are still mostly inedible, even after the fact that they're edible for some. And that's different than the candle, which is totally usable after it's extinguished. Or the possibility is that when it comes to the candle, you anticipate them being ready to use after it extinguishes on Shabbat, and therefore you have dot on the remaining Shemin, as opposed to Grok and Simukim, if they weren't ready coming into Shabbat, there's no reason for you to believe that they will be ready on Shabbat, and you never have them within your purview to be considered Ro'uyim or Muchanim on Shabbat, and that's how you'll distinguish those cases for Rabbi Shimon. Is that really true that no other things have a dinner mux according to Rabbi Shimon? Don't we have a bright eye? He's eating figs and it's some leftover. And he takes them up to the roof to make them into dried figs. But he's eating grapes. Both here and he has leftover grapes. And he puts them on the roof where they used to have a flat roof and they would dry the fruits out on the roof. And he puts them out there to become raisins. That you're not allowed to eat until you actively bring them back into being muhan for Shabbat. That's considered to be out of your purview, something that's muksa. Now, who's the person who speaks about Grugerot and Simukim being a problem of muksa? That's Rabbi Shimon. And that Breitah continues and says that the same thing is true about Fasakim Vechabushim. It's true also of peaches and quinces. All those things that are put out to dry or to pickle, they are considered to be problematic or muksa on Shabbat, Ubushar Perot, and any other fruits. So why is Rabbi Yudam Shmuel only mentioning Grugorot and Simukim, where we seem to have a Brayta, which is the sheet of Rabbi Shimon, and it's mentioning all other fruits having the same din. So Gemara says, Mani, who's the author of this Brayta? Rabbi Yudah. If you think it's Rabbi Yudah, Maheche dolo muksa. We're in a case where you didn't do Dachiyabiyadayim. It's still considered to be muksa, according to Rabbi Yudah. If it's out in your Otsar, it's in your silo, it's muksa because you weren't making it. You didn't make it ready to be usable and have in mind to use it on Shabbat. That's already muksa. So Certainly in a case where you put it actively there, it's going to be a problem. Here where you clearly put it up there intentionally, that certainly should be muksa. So why would you need to tell me that in a braita? El Olav Rabbi Shimoni must be the author of this braita is Rabbi Shimon. But it says, no, the Olam Rabbi Yehuda, it is Rabbi Yehuda. The Ochel Itzrichale. The case is an unusual case. He was eating the grapes. He was eating the figs. Salgadat I would have thought, came into Ka'achavazil, since he was eating and going along. Then he put him up on the roof. So since in the middle of his eating, he had some left over, he put him up on the roof, maybe he still has them in mind. Maybe that's not considered to be a dechiyah, or that's not considered pushing them out. So therefore, loli bayazmana. Therefore, you would not need active engagement to bring them back in to be usable on Shabbat, to bring them back into your purview or your environment on Shabbat. Kamash Malan, that that's not the case. Once you put on the roof, he has severed them from his purview. He has disengaged from these items. And then they are no different than items that are found in the outside, that are found in your shed outside, in your silo outside, which are not considered to be mukha on the Shabbat, and therefore they need active engagement. So Rabbi Shimon 
The difference between the fruits and the growth in Simukim is the distinction we made, which is that these fruits, even though they become slightly inedible or rotten while they're going through the drying process, they're not completely inedible during that time period. And therefore, even though there's Dachim it's not sufficient grounds to make it that it's muksa until it also becomes inedible. That's only true by Grugarot and Simukim. Other fruits, that's not true by for Rabbi Yehuda, he has a much lower threshold of what's considered to be muksa. That's anything that you've taken out of your purview. So anything that you put up on the gag is already out of your world or that which was prepared or muhan for Shabbat. And even though you were just eating them and you put them up there and you would think that that's just a continuation, it's like a little putting them in the refrigerator. He says, no, once you put them on the roof, that's a disengagement with the item. And they become like they're in the storehouse and you would have to actively engage them for them to be muhan and Shabbat. Otherwise, the default, according to Rabbi Yehuda, would be that they are muksa. According to Rabbi Shimon, the default is that they are muhan, unless you've actively pushed them out, and they're going to go through an inedible state, which is the Gugurot and the Tzumukim. And Tosfo points out here, according to Rabbi Yehuda, that if you were eating them, and then you put them in the storehouse, rather than on the roof, then they would not be muksa, because there you were not docheleb yadayim. So he requires docheleb yadayim to disengage from the eating of them, and make them that they're no longer relevant to Shabbat. Whereas... If it's just placed in the refrigerator or in the outside, outside, that's considered to be something that you're still engaged with because you were eating them, and that's not called dechia biyadaim, and you could continue to utilize them on Shabbat. They would not be considered to be muksa. So by many Rabbi Shimon Rabbi Mishmei Rabbi. So Rabbi Shimba Rabbi, Rabbi's son, asked of Rabbi, Patzile Timara, the Rabbi Shimon Mahu. The Patzile Timara, according to Rashi, these are dates that are picked before they are fully ripe. Then you put them into baskets made out of palm leaves, and then they sit there and they ripen in these baskets. What is the din to eat them before they become ripened? Do we say that they're called muksa, like grugrot and simukim, because they were in a state of inedibility, and they're moving towards edibility, but they were put in the baskets to wait to be mivushau, and therefore you would not consider eating them? Or are they considered to be dechia biyadayim to the point where we wouldn't let you eat them or utilize them on Shabbat? Amalei ain't muksa the Rabbi Shimon el grugrot with simukim bilvad. Rabbi says back to his son that only grugrot and simukim, and as Rashi points out here, and this is what we already noted before, the ikatarte, you have two things there, the dechinu biyadayim, below chazu. Not only did you actively push them out of your world or out of their current usage, but they're also going to go through an inedible state. And that's the problem. Whereas here, by the dates, the longer they stay in the basket, the more edible they're going to become, the more engaged they will become and mukhan they'll become. So even though you were docheb yadayim, they still are quasi-edible and will become even more edible as they stay there over time. And therefore, it's not considered a muksa according to Rabbi Shimon. If you look at the bottom of the Amud over here, the Tosvot Yishanim quotes that the Ri says that he thinks that that is not the right perush. And he quotes from the Oroch that these patzilei tmara is lashom mifatzah, that they cut open the tmarim in order for them to ripen, and then they dry out. So at the time that you cut them open, they get ruined a little bit, and then they only afterwards do they improve, get better, and then finally dry out. So he says that they are similar to Gugrotu Tzimukim, but they're different than them because Grugrot and Simukim deteriorate more in that interim stage where they become completely inedible versus the Ptilei Tamara, which are still somewhat edible in that period and they're sim- more similar to other fruits than they are to Grugrot and Simukim. So Gemara says over here, Verabi Leitle Moksa. The Gemara makes an assumption that Rabbi holds like Rabbi Shimon. Now Rabbi never said he held like Rabbi Shimon. He answered his son's question with regards to Rabbi Shimon. So as Rashi notes over here, the Gemara thought that the only reason Rabbi Shimon Berabi was asking his father Rabbi about the din of Rabbi Shimon is because Rabbi held of Rabbi Shimon and therefore he's well versed in the position of Rabbi Shimon rather than simply being an intellectual or esoteric question as to what is the position of Rabbi Shimon must be that he was asking him Allah said because his father held like Rabbi Shimon. So therefore because of that the Gemara says Rabbi holds like Rabbi Shimon and lately Moksav not. Is that really true? We have a Mishnah in Beitza that says Ein mashkim v'shochatim et bariot you're not allowed to give to drink or to shech wild animals on Yom Tov because they're not considered to be muchanim. And mashkim over here is because you give them to drink. It makes them easier to flay afterwards. The truth is that the Easter to give them to drink might be independent of that because you're not allowed to feed wild animals on Shabbat and Yom Tov because it's a tircha shalolitzorech. But either, either way, they would be restricted from giving them to drink and from shechting them because they're muksa. But mashkim is shochatim at the baito. But you can give to drink. And you can shech the domesticated ones. 
Netanyahu. And we have a bright dawn on that Mishnah that says, Eluhen Midbariot, what is considered to be wild or non-domesticated animals, Koshiotzot Bepesach, all the animals that leave in the beginning of the springtime, Benichnasot Beriviyah, and they only come back into the shelter or back to the farm when the first rains start. So they're out in the fields all that time. They're not completely wild. They belong to the farmer or to the shepherd or the cowboy, but they go out and graze independently for a large period of time, over six months, and then they only come back in during the rainy season. Those are considered to be out of your purview on Yom Tov. They go out to graze. They leave the area of the city. But every night they return back inside the perimeter of the city in order to sleep and to rest. Rabbi Omer, so Rabbi is Rabbi Yudah Nasi, that's why we're bringing this bright over here. Eluvelu baitotein. Both of those descriptions that you gave there, they're both considered to be domesticated animals, meaning that they are within your purview. You know about those animals, both the ones that come back every night, and the ones that you're expecting to come back at the first rain. Be'elohim midbariot, so then what are considered to be out of your purview, wild, quote-unquote, animals? Kol shiro'ot ba'far these animals go out and graze, and they don't come in in the winter, they don't come in in the summer. So they might belong to the farmer, they might be something that he counts on, but nevertheless, they never really return to his local area. They're always out in the fields. So those animals are considered to be midbariot. So now what you see is that he argues about what's considered to be outside your purview and within your purview to be muksa or not muksa on Yom Tov, but that means he clearly thinks that there is muksa on Yom Tov. If he holds like Rabbi Shimon, why is there any din of muksa here at all? He shouldn't be mentioning muksa because he doesn't hold a muksa like Rabbi Shimon. Mark gives a number of answers. These are considered to be like gugurot utzimukim. It's a little difficult to understand why that is because here you're not really dachia biadayim, although Rashi calls it dachia biadayim because you let them go out and graze. And on top of that, there's similar to the grugrot and simukim where they become inedible. There is yesh torach There's an additional burden on you or effort that you'd have to make to go bring them in and to actually eat them. So those two things combined make it that they're similar to Gugrot Vitzimukim, and that's why he has it be Mutza like the sheet of Rabbi Shimon. Simplest answer, which is what we might have thought from reading the question that Rabbi Shimba Rabbi asked his father about Rabbi Shimba Yochai's position is that Rabbi was just answering him what is Rabbi Shimon's position, but that doesn't mean that he holds like Rabbi Shimon, he's just explaining the position of Rabbi Shimon. Or the third possibility is that Rabbi does hold like Rabbi Shimon, like in the first case, where he does hold the Rabbi Shimon, he doesn't think there's muksa at all. And he says, lately muksa klau. I don't think there's muksa here at all, and therefore there's no baitot midbariot, nothing makes a difference, nothing's muksa, you can utilize any of them. Lididhu, according to you, Odolimihat, at least according to you, who hold like Rabbi Huda, and there is muksa over here, that I think your distinction of baitot and midbariot is incorrect. The heichid, the yotzot, the pesach, and the yotzot, those should still be considered in your purview and not considered to be muksa. They disagree with that. It's just arguing within the position of Rabbi Yehuda what should be the cutoff for what's considered to be domesticated or within your purview for not being muksa versus what's outside of that. But Rabbi himself believes like Rabbi Shimon that there is no din of muksa. Those were over here questions as to why the Gemara is so in doubt about Rabbi's holding like Rabbi Shimon, because we've had examples earlier in the Gemara where Rabbi clearly held like Rabbi Shimon. The truth is that I don't know why the Gemara doesn't bring in what it does in the beginning of the Gemara in Beitzah, which is that the Stab Mishnayot in Shabbat seem to follow the position of Rabbi Shimon, which is there is no Muksa, and the Stab Mishnayot in Beitzah follow the position of Rabbi Yehuda that there is Muksa. And the Gemara says, how could it be that the Stam Mishnayot in Shabbat hold like Rabbi Shimon and the Stam Mishnayot in Beitzah on Yom Tov hold like Rabbi Yehuda? So the says, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, when he's Messiah of the Mishnah, he thought that Rabbi Shimon's position was more correct with regards to Shabbat. Because over there, the Chumrah of Shabbat makes it that you don't need the Din of Muksa. Whereas by Yom Tov, where there's the Kula of Ochel Nefesh, you need the stringency of Muksa, and therefore he passed him like Rabbi Yehuda. And that would solve the problem here. By Yom Tov, he holds like Rabbi Yehuda. By Shabbat, he holds like Rabbi Shimon. The question his son asked him was a question about Shabbat. And there he holds like Rabbi Shimon. Over there, the Mishnah and the Brayta that we're bringing are Dinim and Dinah Yom Tov. And over there, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi holds like Rabbi Yehuda. And that would be the simplest way to answer. 
obviously the Gemara here either doesn't subscribe to that or is trying to come up with a consistent opinion of Rabbi that either holds a Rabbi Yehuda or Rabbi Shimon. Okay, Amar Rabbi Berchana, Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Amru halacha Rabbi Shimon. Amru, as Rashi says, is the Bnei Yeshiva say that we hold like Rabbi Shimon. Mar says to me, Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Hachi, does Rabbi Yochanan really believe that the halacha is like Rabbi Shimon? Rabbi Aminei Hausaba Kiruya Aramila Suruya. So this elderly individual, whether he was from a place called Kruya or Suruya, asked Rabbi Yochanan, Kina Sheltar Negolim Bishabat. A portable chicken coop, what is they din with regards to carrying it on Shabbat? Isn't the chicken coop made for the chickens? And chickens on Shabbat are muksa. So that's the case, then it's just something that is utilized for muksa. Rashi calls it that it's malachtoli isur, which is a very hard designation. And there's nothing wrong or isur being done with it on Shabbat that you classify it as malachtoli isur. I think it means a, a more loose definition, which is its purpose or designation is for utilization with things that are muksa or cannot be carried on Shabbat. So then why would you be allowed to carry it on Shabbat? So that would indicate that he does have a din of muksa because he's saying that it's restricted. And according to Rabbi Shimon, there's no din of muksa. So why would you then be restricted from carrying such a item on Shabbat? That there's a dead chick in the cage. So the dead chick in the cage is something that is muksa, even according to Rabbi Shimon, because it's an available, and you can't do anything with it on Shabbat, and it wasn't ro'oi to be used, it was alive coming into Shabbat, it wasn't hatched yet coming into Shabbat, and therefore it creates a problem muksa. But it says, Hanicha lamar bar ameymar mishmederova, there's a machloka that we're going to see in the Gemara in Beitzah, with regards to whether, if you have an animal that is unhealthy coming into Shabbat, and then it dies on Shabbat, there Rabbi Shimon says it's not muksa because you had in mind to use it on Shabbat, the nevela, because you knew it might die on Shabbat, and you can feed that to the klavim. question is, if you have a healthy animal going into Shabbat, and then that animal dies on Shabbat, can you feed it to the klavim? So there are some who suggest that that's already, in Rabbi Shimon's view, enough of muksa because it was so healthy going into Shabbat, you had no possibility that you had in mind to use it for your dogs or feed it to the dogs. Therefore, it is muksa. So according to that reasoning, the Afrocha mate would make sense over here. That is a problem of a muksa because you can't feed it to the dogs because it was healthy going in or wasn't born yet coming into Shabbat and now you have a dead efroch that you hadn't counted on and therefore it is muksa. So that's good. That if you have a healthy animal that dies on Shabbat, shasurim that they have a different muksa. Elamar braid the Rav Yosef mishmei the Rava. Tamar chaluka ya Rabbi Shimon afilu bebalei chayim shemeitu. That even if you have a healthy animal going to Shabbat that dies. Shein mutarim, that's fine, that's not muksa, he doesn't hold the muksa, except for gugurot and simukim, and it's not a case of gugurot and simukim, and therefore it would be mutar to use it on Shabbat, ma'ikah the meymar. Then why, if Rabbi Yochanan's holding the Rabbi Shimon, did he say the chicken coop's problematic, even if there's a dead chick inside of it? And Tosavu points out that they didn't say a live chick, because a live chick is not considered to be muksa, because it's a pet or a toy for a little child that is crying. Now, Tosvot says, Einira, he thinks that's not the right answer. Although, it must be that Bale Chaim are Muksim, like Kugurot and Simukim, and we saw that in one of the answers that we gave for Rabbi's position before. But then, why is it that the Gemara didn't answer that? So the Tosvot Yishanim over here on the side notes that's because if it's alive, you can just shoo it to go out of the cage, and then it won't be in the cage anymore, and then you can pick up the cage, and then there wouldn't be any question. You need something that can't move to be a question with regards to Muksa on Shabbat. It says, There's a egg inside of it. We're going to see again in the Gemara Beitza that whoever holds a muksa thinks that new things that are created on Shabbat are a problem of muksa or nolad, a creation on Shabbat, which you obviously didn't have your mind on because it wasn't there before Shabbat. Therefore, it's not muhan for Shabbat. That if you hold a muksa, you hold them no lad. The lay muksa, lay no lad. But if you don't hold a muksa, you don't have no lad. And since Rabbi Shima doesn't hold a muksa, then he's not going to hold him no lad. So what does it matter that you have an egg that was born on Shabbat itself? So that's not going to make the item in muksa, according to Rabbi Shimon. And Tosafot on the top of that says that Rabbi Yochanan himself, in the Gemara in Beitza, says the whole problem of an egg being born on Yom Tov or Shabbat is a problem of mashkim sezovu. It looks like you are taking a fruit and squeezing out the liquids from it, which are problematic. And that's, for instance, domelalat is gzeira, that you can't eat the egg which would mean that it would be a problem on Shabbat or Yom Tov, the egg, irrespective of muksa. The answer might be over there that the problem over here is an Easter tiltal, 
Over there, mashkim shizovu means only a problem of achila, that we don't let you eat them, doesn't mean that you can't carry them. And so since you could carry them, that's not a din in muksa. And so maybe you would be allowed to carry it, even though it's a problem of mashkim shizovu. So Gemara says, It's a case where you have a fertilized egg that's being incubated, and now is already starting to convert into a chick. So in that case, it's problematic with muksa, even according to Rabbi Shimon. Because over here you have dachya biadayim, you're allowing the egg to be incubated by the chicken, which means that you are actively disengaging from the egg. In addition, it becomes inedible in that state, even for a dog, because as Rashi says, the klipa, the shell or the encasement around it, is too difficult for the animal to get through or not something that it would want to do. And therefore, it's inedible for that animal as well. And therefore, you have dachya biadayim, and inedible, and it's like growth fitzimukin, and that's why it is muksa. So here we reconcile that even though Rabbi Yochanan's passing like Rabbi Shimon, he can still say that this chicken coop was problematic. And as the Pnei Yoshua says over here, the reason that all this was incorporated in what Rabbi Yochanan said. Rabbi Yochanan said, isn't the coop designated for chickens? And what do you find with chickens usually? You find eggs, you find chicks, and you find incubated eggs. So those are all things that are found there. And according to Rabbi Shimon, that's going to be a problem, at least when it comes to an incubated egg. Now the truth is, as Tosafot points out, you made the case so good that even Rabbi Shimon would agree that it's muksa. Then what was the question of the individual who was posing this to Rabbi Yochanan about carrying this portable coop? So the answer was that he didn't want to pick up the coop with the beitza defroch in it. What he wanted to do was tilt him outside. He wanted to tip over or tilt the portable coop and have the egg roll out and then move the coop without the egg in it. And his question was, when you leave the egg in the coop, is that considered like meniach that you intentionally left there and now it's a busis ledover asur, which we'll see later on in the sechtan and beitza is problematic? Or do we say that shachach, he forgot the item there and when he forgot it there, that's a reason that it's not considered a busis ledover asur because you didn't intend to make it into a base for this muksa. And to that, Rabbi Yochanan answers him, what's the purpose of a coop? A coop is for the tiny golem, and if it's for the tiny golem, then you know there's going to be eggs that are incubated there, and therefore, even if you forgot it there, it's as if maniach, if you put it there intentionally, and that's why it's a sore, and you can't tilt it over to have the egg roll out. So now we have a view that Rabbi Yochanan does not think the Allah is like Rabbi Shimon, but rather like Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, on the other hand, says, Rabbi Shimon. So Amar Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef says, Rabbi Yochanan. Now I understand what that statement before, Rabbi Barchanan, Rabbi Yochanan says, Amru Allah Rabbi Shimon. Amru is that the Bnei Yeshiva say that the locha is like Rabbi Shimon. Amru, they say that, but I don't hold like that because I hold like Rabbi Yehuda. Now I can understand that statement. He really wasn't saying I hold like Rabbi Shimon. He was saying that's what the Bnei Yeshiva say. But Rabbi Yochanan's personal opinion, as we say here from the quote from Yitzhak Bar Yosef, is that Rabbi Yochanan held like Rabbi Yehuda. So Amru Abaye, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi says to Rabbi Yosef is Rabbi, you don't think that Rabbi Yochanan holds like Rabbi Yehuda? You needed this to tell you that? Don't you know that Rabbi Yochanan holds the Allah is like Rabbi Yehuda? Ha Rabbi Ava, Rabbi Asi, Iklo Bay Rabbi Ava min Haifa. Rabbi Ava and Rabbi Asi went to visit the house of Rabbi Ava min Haifa. And Rabbi Asi's cloak was laid out somewhere, and a candelabra fell on top of it. Below Tiltula. And they didn't pick it up, and they didn't move it. My time, why didn't they pick it up? Isn't it because Rabbi Asi is a Talmud of Rabbi Yochanan? And Rabbi Yochanan holds like Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Asi is a Talmud Mufak of Rabbi Yochanan. And as Tosfo points out, he's different than the other Rabbi Asi that we saw earlier. Because there are two Rabbi Asis. Tosfo in a number of places in Shas notes that. That one is Rabbi Asi, the Talmud of Rav, who is a Chaver of Rav Kahano. Whereas the Rav Asi over here is a Talmud of Rabbi Yochanan, who is a Chover of Rabbi Ami. And then Rabbi Yosef is going to respond to Abaye that made the menorah or the candelabra as an exception to the rule because of its unique status. But we'll leave that because that sugya continues into tomorrow. Okay, we're going to stop here. Eight lines from the bottom of Memhei Amudbet.